1960s Sydney, Australia, the winners of number 10 Opera House Lottery went from jubilation to heartbreak when their son is kidnapped and held for ransom. However, little Graham Thorne would never come home. I'm your host Cambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Islanders, tonight we go way back in time to what is arguably a more innocent time. We go back nearly 60 years to 1960 Sydney, Australia. I will be reading tonight from the Australian Police Journal, Sydney Morning Herald and some detail from the Australian Dictionary of Biography and that part is by Stephen Garton. At the end of the show, I will give you the name of a book by one of our very own Aussie podcasters and authors that you may follow, Amanda Howard from Monsters Who Murder podcast. Now, some of you are triggered by child cases, but although this does involve a child, there is no real detailed gore at all, so I think you should be fine. It is a sad case, though. Now, I'm sure everyone knows what the Sydney Opera House looks like. Looks like nuns in a scrum, boats all stacked up, or whatever. But back in the late 1940s and 50s, the idea for a new opera house was being floated around as the Sydney Town Hall was just too small. An international design competition was held and of 233 entries from 32 countries, it would be Danish architect Jan Utzen's design that came out as the winner. Now, to help pay for all this, to pay for that new opera house, the government started the opera house lottery. Lucky they did, as the original estimate of $7 million, which would have been pounds back then, to build it uh, blew out to $102 million. Ah. They thought it would also take about four years to build, but in the end it took 14. So back to the lottery. Originally it cost £5 a ticket and the prize was £100,000. That was a lot of money back in the day, about $3 million in today's money. Now, I think they had different lotteries. There's also a three-pound ticket lottery, which is the one I think we'll be looking at today. On Wednesday, the 1st of June, 1960, Opera House Lottery number 10 was drawn and the winning ticket, number 3932, syndicate name of self, was held by 37-year-old Basil Harold Parkathorne of 79 Edwards Street, Bondi. Quite unusual for such a low number to win, but there you go. Basil lived there with his wife, 33-year-old Frida, and their 8-year-old son, Graham, and 3-year-old daughter, Belinda. They did have another older daughter, Cheryl, 
they do say that she was institutionalised. Now, I, that's as far as I know. Basil worked in the family business with his father and was on the road at the time in Gunnedah, which is about 400 kilometres north of Sydney. Newspaper reporters called to tell him the news and Basil jumped on an East West Airlines plane back to Sydney. On arrival at the TAA terminal at Kingsford Smith Airport, he was met by a couple of reporters and photographers. He would go on to say, the money would not be recklessly spent or given away. I believe in the saying, charity begins at home and I intend to make this my policy. He said that apart from buying a house, he had no plans yet for the money other than maybe stick it in a six-month term deposit at the bank while he, while he became accustomed to owning such a large amount. Probably not a bad idea. Now, back in the day, if you won the lottery, you would have your face splashed on all the newspapers, it would be read out on all the radio stations and even the nightly news on TV. So, not only your name would be broadcast, but also your address. This, in part, was a way to make sure that real people won the lottery and it wasn't won by someone within the lottery office trying to scam the system. Sort of like making fake multiple email addresses to try and win a contest in today's terms, if you know what I mean. So, it was a security measure to make sure no one cheated. And back then, times were different. Often people wouldn't lock their doors or they just leave spare keys in easy-to-find places. So being named as a lottery winner wasn't such a big deal. Well, things would change in July 1960. Much as they did, I'd say, with the Samantha Knight case from last week, where it was no big deal to be a latchkey kid until she disappeared off the streets and then parents started dropping off and picking their kids up from school. Times suddenly changed. Just a side note, the Knight's Place and the Thorn's Place are about five minutes walk apart from each other. Back to this lottery. The lottery was drawn on the 1st of June 1960, and as I said, won by Basil Thorne. It was to be paid out on the 7th of July 1960, according to some reports, although payments were actually payable on and after Friday the 3rd of June. Maybe the large first prize took more time to process. Anyway, just saying. So Basil's mug is all over the news, along with his address, and this didn't go unnoticed by one particular Hungarian immigrant named Stephen Leslie Bradley. According to the Australian Police Journal, Bradley was born Istvan Baranyay in Budapest in 1926 and arrived in Australia on the 28th of March 1950 aboard the SS Skorngum, which was being used to transport people from camps in Germany after World War II. Short, thick-set and balding, he was known as a liar and not a very good one. He was also seen as an opportunist. In 1952, he married Eva Maria Laszlo in Melbourne. Laszlo in Melbourne. I know a Laszlo in Melbourne. It's Barney's little kitty cat. Anyway, in 1952, he married Eva Marie Laszlo in Melbourne and lived with her until she was killed in a motor vehicle accident in 1955. There was one child of that union. 
1958, Bradley married Magna Whitman, a divorcee who had two children from her previous marriage. She owned a boarding house in Katoomba. This ended up burning down and the insurance didn't really pay out as much as Basil thought it would. So I don't know if he did an insurance job on the place or not, but it looks like he probably did. Bradley worked hard to feed his family and worked as a residential proprietor and a guesthouse proprietor. He reckoned he was an engineer and a doctor in Italy. I think this is where he doesn't lie too well. He also worked as an electroplater in Sydney. Even though he worked hard, he was frustrated and was always living beyond his means, dressing well, and he loved big cars. Basil lived in a multi-level house at 28 Moore Street, Clontarf, about a 25-minute drive or so north of Sydney, sort of on the way to Manly. He drove an iridescent blue 1955 Ford Custom Line, registration number Alpha Yankee Oscar 382. Now Bradley came up with a plan to do a bit of surveillance on the Thorne family with a view to kidnap one of the kids and extort a ransom from them. So the Thorns lived at 79 Edward Street, Bondi. Across the road from there is Dixon Park. Bradley would park his big bright blue Ford near the park and observe the coming and goings of the family. Soon Bradley worked out that eight-year-old Graham would walk from his house, turn left down Wellington Street to the O'Brien Street corner at around 8.30am. Here he would meet family friend Mrs Phyllis Smith who would drive him and her kids to Scott's College at Bellevue Hill. This walk is only 300 metres. Bradley was also able to call the Postmaster General's new services branch and find out the Thorns phone number which by the way was yet to be connected and was to be unlisted. He didn't need any social engineering to get the number Not like, you know, privacy procedures we have in place today. Now, on or about the 14th of June, Bradley turned up at the Thorns' flat in the early evening. Frida Thorne answered the door. Bradley asked about a Mr Bognor that he was wanting to talk to. But Frida replied that she knew of no one by that name. When pressed, Frida said that a family had just moved here and that the tenant before may have been a man called Bailey but she wasn't sure. She asked if that was the person he was looking for. Bradley replied no, and went on to ask if the phone number here was 307113. Frida was a bit taken back, as that was going to be their number, but the phone hadn't been installed yet, and also it was to be a privately listed number. She asked, how did you get that number? Bradley replied, We have ways and means. Frida then told him, That happens to be my number, but we haven't got the telephone connected yet. Bradley went on, I am a private inquiry agent, and this is a husband and wife affair. Frida then suggested that he goes upstairs and ask a long-term tenant, Mrs Lord, who would probably be able to help him. Bradley, to help disguise his ruse, then went up to Mrs. Lord's room, but he asked her about a Mr. Bailey, not a Mr. Bogner. Sneaky bugger. At somewhere around 8.15am on the morning of Thursday the 7th of July 1960, 
Bradley drove his iridescent blue 1955 Ford Custom Line and parked it on the intersection of Francis Street and Wellington Street, just around the corner from the Thorns House, with the arse of it blocking the walkway along Wellington Street, such that if you had, you had to walk around it to cross the road. Now, as I said before, Graham would turn left from his place onto Edward Street, then first left into Wellington Street towards O'Brien Street to be picked up by family friend Mrs Phyllis Smith and be driven to Scott's College with her two boys. Francis Street was the street about 200 metres short of the O'Brien Street intersection. As Bradley saw Graham approach at approximately 8.25am, he got out of the car and told Graham that he was to take him to school as the usual lady was sick and unable to make it today. Now, there's no witnesses to Graham getting into the car, so it's not really known if he got in the car willingly or if Bradley had to force him. Now, Phyllis wondered where he was and so drove up to the Thorns place and asked Frida where Graham was. Hey, Frida, where's Graham? Confused, Frida then called the school to see if he was there, but he, he wasn't. It didn't take long for Frida to call the police and they were at the Edward Street property in no time. While they were there at around 9.47am, Frida took a telephone call. It was from a male with a foreign accent who said, We have your son. Frida handed the phone to the sergeant, that was Sergeant O'Shea, who posed as Mr Thorne. The caller then demanded £25,000 before 5pm that day for the boy's safe return. Otherwise, the boy will be fed to the sharks. Now, Sergeant O'Shea, he had no idea at this time that the Thorns had just won all this money on the lottery and when asking the caller about the £25,000, he replied, Now, where would I get that sort of money? Bradley at this stage, may have started thinking, hey, this isn't Basil on the phone. This could be a cop. There, uh, there was no detail as how the money was to be delivered. However, the caller said he would make contact later in the day. Well, he did, not at 5pm. He rang again at 9.47pm that evening. And after asking if they had the money, he gave instructions for it to be placed into two paper bags. The caller, however, hung up before giving any further instructions and made no further demands. Now, Basil Thorne was away on business in Kempsey at the time, so both of these calls were answered by two different policemen. Now, they had both claimed to be Graham's father, so this may have spooked Bradley. He may have picked up the two different voices. It is at this time that it's believed that Bradley strangled Graham with a scarf, bludgeoned him on the head, and then wrapped his dead body in a blanket from the car and stashed him under the house. Later that night, he would move the body to a vacant lot at Grandview Grove Seaforth under a rock ledge that was covered with small bushes. Now, it was mostly out of sight. So this was Australia's first kidnapping, six years before other, the other famous kidnapping of the Beaumont children. I'm sure you've all heard of that. Now, besides everything that happened earlier on in the day, Bradley also organised his wife and kids 
to move out of their house in Clontarf with them catching a taxi to the city at 10am. Removalists turned up at 11am and moved all the furniture to storage in Botany. Busy kidnapping at 8.30am, call and demand ransom at 9.40am, taxi for the family at 10am and then the removalists at 11am. Later at 9.47pm, he calls the Thorns' house and it is after this call that if he hasn't already, he kills uh, he kills Graham and then disposes of his body. So Basil Thorne flew back into Sydney and he and Frieda had a televised appeal to anyone that had any information on the whereabouts of Graham. The police put up a £15,000 reward as well. At around 6pm Friday the 8th of July, Graham's school suitcase is found alongside the road in bushes at the Wakehurst Parkway, Bantry Bay. This sparked a huge search of the area with police dogs, helicopters and shoulder-to-shoulder searches of the bushland. But there was no call from the kidnapper. By now, the news of the kidnapping had gone what we would say in today's terms, viral. Not only were police looking for Graham, but everyone was. Even organised crime figures of the day were cooperating with police to help find Graham. Yeah, well, <laughs> I think they used to always cooperate with the police. New South Wales police always were the best money could buy. Anyway, on the Monday, the 11th of July, Graham's school cap, raincoat, lunch bag, maths book, and a sheet torn from an exercise book was found about another mile north of where the suitcase was found. This gave some small hope that Graham would still be found alive, although there was still no contact from the kidnapper. There would, however, be hoax callers, especially there was a few in Brisbane. They're a bit crazy up in Brisbane. It's uh, Australia's Florida. Police would use one of their female officers to dress and look similar to Frieda Thorne and try to make a rendezvous, but it really came to nothing. Now, the one big lead that police were pursuing was the visitation of the private inquiry agent on the 14th of June. Now, I will say 14th of June that he went and saw uh, Frieda Thorne, but newspapers also report the 23rd of June. But I guess it doesn't really matter in the scheme of things. Also, witnesses came forward saying that there was a man that sat in the park several days in a row before the kidnapping that resembled the private inquiry agent and a couple of Graham's school friends remember a man asking about him as, as well. The other lead was the blue 1955 Ford Custom Line that was parked awkwardly on the morning Graham went missing. Now, honestly, if you're going to use a car to do something like a kidnapping or whatever, using a huge, bright blue Ford Custom Line that sticks out like dog's balls is probably not the best car to use. Not only was it seen on the day of the kidnapping, but witnesses would come forward saying that they'd seen it parked in the area several times before the kidnapping. Now, police would find that there are around 4,000 1955 custom lines registered in New South Wales. Police would interview all of these owners regardless of the colour of the car they had. Police had a hunch 
that the kidnapper, kidnapper lived in the area where Graham's personal effects were found and concentrated a search by up to 800 men around that area for six days, but they found no more clues. On the 16th of August, 40 days after the kidnapping, three boys, eight-year-old Eric Coglin, eight-year-old Philip Wall, and seven-year-old Andrew McHugh were playing near their cubby house that they'd made in a vacant lot on Grandview Grove. They saw a blanket-wrapped bundle behind some bushes under a rock ledge. They at first thought it was rubbish, but on closer inspection, the contents were much more gruesome. Well, Philip Wall went home and said to his mum, There's a bundle up in the bush. There's something like a head in it. I saw a shirt. I didn't touch it, but it's about my size. Philip's mum, Lola, decided to wait until her husband came home from work before investigating. Eric Coughlin told his grandparents about the fine and they decided to wait until Eric's father got home from work as well. (sighs) Dear, mum, there's a body in the bush of a kid. That's nice, dear, wait till your father gets home. Times were definitely different back then. So, David Wall gets home from work and is told about the body. He said, if that's the case, then let's go and make sure. It was now dark and Mr Wall didn't have a torch, so he lit the way by lighting matches. At almost the same time, Eric Coglin's dad, Eric Senior, joined the search, and he, but he had a torch. David Wall said, we did not know what to expect, and then we saw the blanket with its bright colours under the rock. It was a wonder the rug had not been noticed before, but I thought it was a dog. The blanket had been knotted up. As I undid the knot, I saw two arms hanging down. I went at once and telephoned police, and then I waited for the detectives and showed them the place. Police turned up in minutes. They lifted the blanket and saw a young boy in a Scots College blazer. No doubt they'd found Graham Thorne. His feet and hands had been bound, he was gagged with a scarf and his school tie was as it had been tied by his mum on the morning of his kidnapping. Fresh handkerchiefs were also found in his pockets. This led police to believe he was killed soon after he was taken on the 7th of July. Mr and Mrs Thorne were devastated. They'd held out hope their son would be found alive and it wasn't to be. Now, It was up to investigators to find out who committed this unprecedented crime. Bradley had moved his family to a rented flat at 49 Osborne Street, Manly, but with the body now found, he started planning to flee the country. So now police had a description of a foreign male, a blue Ford custom line, and they would look very closely at all the evidence they obtained from the crime scene. Remember, this is 1960. The forensic techniques that we take for granted today were either new or not even thought of. This case would mark one of the first cases in Australian criminal history that used a number of forensic techniques that had never been used before. Now, it was determined that Graham had been killed within 24 hours of his kidnapping. His stomach was empty, which would have happened around two to three hours after breakfast. The fungi on his shoes indicated 
that they had not been used for around five or six weeks by their stage of growth. These fungi could not start to grow if the shoes were being used and would not develop unless covered and in a humid atmosphere. His clothes were as as he had left home. As I said before, his tie still tied and fresh folded handkerchiefs in his pockets. The rug he was found wrapped in was closely examined and identified as being manufactured by Onka Paringa Mills in South Australia. It was pattern number 0639 of which 3,000 were made between 1955 and 1956. There were several tassels missing. Numerous hairs were found on both sides of the rug and these fell into two main groups. Animal hairs of reddish brown and lighter at the roots, varying in length from 1 to 4 inches. They were soft and wavy, having microscopically the characteristics of dog hairs. Certain features of the hairs indicated that they were from a Pekingese or similar type of dog. Human head hairs were found of three classes. Light to medium brown hairs with the appearance of having been dyed a reddish or auburn colour. The maximum length was 9 inches. Unstained brown head hairs with a maximum length of 8 inches. There were light coloured hairs. These were either blonde or grey hairs that had been subjected to treatment with a yellow or henna rinse. Similar animal hairs were found adhering to the back of Graham's pants and coat. A blonde coloured human hair was found on the back of his coat and two similar human hairs were recovered from the scarf tied around his neck. Foliage pieces were found on the rug as well as Graham's clothes. Some of these matched plants at the site where his body was found, but foliage from two different shrubs not found at this site was also found. Now, I'm not going to pronounce the scientific names of these, but they were common shrubs found throughout Sydney. The thing is, you would usually find one or the other on someone's property, not both. Soil scrapings from Graham's clothes showed minute fragments of a pink-coloured substance identified by chemical tests as fragments of limestock mortar. The way it was distributed on the clothing suggested he was stored under a house for a period of time. So police were looking for a house with a high foundation so they can stack the body under it, had two specific shrubs growing, and also had pink mortar. They started canvassing the streets, radiating out from where Graham's body was found. Then boom, fuckalunga. On October the 3rd, detectives located a property at 28 Moore Street, Clontarf, a few kilometres from where Graham's body was found, and it had all the characteristics they were looking for. Inquiries found at the time of the kidnapping, the house was occupied by Stephen Leslie Bradley and that he had moved out that very day. They also found that Bradley had recently sold a blue 1955 Ford Custom Line, which they were able to track down and perform a forensic examination of. They were able to match the dog hair and human hair found on Graham's clothes and the blanket to hair they found in the car boot. These same hairs were also found at the Clontarf house and the manly residence of Bradley and his family. 
Bradley also had a Gogamobile. G-O-G-G-O. That's a bit of an inside joke for the Aussie, but <laughs> Aussies. But he had a Gogamobile that was tracked down when he lived at Clontarf. It also had the same hairs when police inspected it. They were even able to track down a vacuum cleaner and a carpet sweeper Bradley sold to a second-hand dealer that had the same dog and human hairs matching those from the crime scene. The type of twine used to bind Graham's hands and feet together was also found on furniture Bradley had sold to second-hand dealers. And you know what? They even found the little Pekingese dog that Bradley had left at a vet surgery. Ah, yes, it's fur match that from the two cars, the body, the blanket, from Bradley's residences, the vacuum cleaner and carpet sweeper. And if you know, if you've got a cat or a dog, cat hair and dog hair is going to get everywhere. Oh, and one of the missing tassels from the blanket was found under the Clontarf house along with soil containing the pink mortar. Chemical analysis of the dyes in the tassels of the blanket and that of the one found under the house showed that only one dye had been used in both cases instead of the more common mixture of dyes required to obtain that particular shade. Now, how could they be sure Bradley had owned such a rug? (laughs) Well, at the Manly Flat... They found 35mm negatives cut up and they'd been thrown out the window. But they got caught up in some bushes and when police did a search, they found them, reconstructed them, stuck them all together and they were able to print off photos of Bradley and his family with the blanket clearly shown in the photo. (laughs) This is pretty good detective work. It's amazing. Once photos of Bradley were shown to Mrs. Thorne, she was able to identify him as the private inquiry guy. So, they pretty much know who it is now. Problem is, we are now in early October and Bradley fled the country with his wife and kids about a week earlier on August the 24th. They'd left on the SS Himalaya en route to London via Colombo. It was to arrive at Colombo, which is in Ceylon, or as it's known now, Sri Lanka, on the 10th of October. Police were able to get a warrant and they were able to fly there before the ship docked. Bradley was arrested and taken from the Himalaya. He would be extradited to Australia on the 18th of October 1960. Now, I'm not sure if at this time his wife and kids proceeded to the UK, but they would end up back in Australia. On his way back to Australia, apparently Bradley confessed to kidnapping Graham, but denied he murdered him, saying he'd suffocated to death in the car boot. Now, without going into all the calculations, it was found that no one would suffocate in a car boot that size over the amount of time Bradley said he was in there for. Also, the injuries found on Graham's body were inconsistent with how Bradley said he died. Bradley, of course, he's trying to build a narrative to lessen the seriousness of the crime. I'll read Bradley's statement to police for you. 
he wrote, I read in the, I'm not going to do this in, an, in a voice, as you can probably tell, my voice is nearly gone as it is. I read in the newspaper that Mr. Thorne won the first prize in the Opera House Lottery, so I decided that I would kidnap his son. I knew their address from the newspaper, and I've got their phone number from the telephone exchange. I went to the house to see them. I have asked for someone, but cannot remember what name. Mrs. Thorne said she did not know the name, and she told me to inquire in the flat upstairs. I went upstairs, and I seen the woman there. I've done this because I thought that the Thorns will check up. I went out and watched the Thorn boy leaving the house and seen him for about three mornings and I've seen where he went. And one morning I have followed him to the school at Bellevue Hill. One or two mornings I've seen a woman pick him up and take him to the school. On the day we moved from Clontarf, I went out to Edward Street. I parked the car in a street. I don't know the name of the street. It's off Wellington Street. I've got out from the car and I waited on the corner until the boy walked down to the car. I've told the boy that I'm able to take him to the school. He said, why? Where is the lady? I said, she's sick and cannot come today. Then the boy got in the car, and I drove him around for a while, and over the harbour bridge. I went to a public phone box near the spit bridge, and I rang the thorns. I talked to Mrs Thorne, and then to a man who said he was the boy's father. I've asked for £25,000 from the boy's mother and father. I told them that if I don't get the monies, I feed him to the sharks, and I have told them I ring later. I took the boy in the car home to Clontarf, and I put the car in my garage. I told the boy to get out of the car and come and see another boy. When he got out of the car, I had put a scarf over his mouth, and I put him in the boot of the car and slammed the boot. I went into my house and the furniture removalist came a few minutes after. When it was nearly dark, I went to the car and found the boy was dead. That night, I tied the boy up with string and put him in my rug. I put the boy in the boot of the Ford car again and then I throw his case and toys out near Bantry Bay and I put the boy on a vacant lotment near the house I went to see with an estate agent to buy it some time before. This was signed S.L. Bradley, witnessed by J.H. Bateman, a Detective Sergeant Second Class of the CI Branch on the 19th of the 11th, 1960 at 10am. So Bradley is charged with murder and his trial started on the 20th of March, 1961 at Central Criminal Court, Sydney. He pleaded not guilty to murder and said that the confession he made when he was extradited to Sydney was made under duress and that the police dictated it to him. He said he'd signed it as he feared harm would come to his wife and family if he didn't. Bradley never really showed any remorse. He would be found guilty on the 29th of March 1961 and sentenced to life in prison. However, he would die of a heart attack in Goulburn Jail in 1968, aged 62 years old, apparently while playing in the jail tennis competition. Magna Bradley returned to Europe in 1965. She took the kids and he, she'd actually divorced him three years before he died in 1965. So Islanders, what a sad case. Really looking back at it, how we were so innocent and naive all that time ago. 
thinking that putting the name and address of a lottery winner in the newspaper was a safe thing to do. But as I said earlier, there were plenty of latchkey kids until the Samantha Knight kidnapping. Now times change. This all happened because they won the lottery. And it was a big life-changing win. Graham lost his life and his family lost him. Winning the lottery and only a month or so later for that win to become a toxic and poisonous curse as your child's taken from you. Or how much you would pay to be able to get him back. How it must also haunt you night after night thinking that if you hadn't bought that lottery ticket or hadn't been picked out, things would be so different. I suppose scum like Bradley have always been around, frustrated with life, wanting the finer things but unable to obtain them. Then something finally snaps and they go and do something fucked up like he did. How he ever thought he was going to get away with it, I don't know. But then again, this was one of the first cases where careful forensic procedures were used to catch the perp. I suppose Bradley was quite surprised at the kind of evidence the police found that tracked him down and convicted him. Basil Thorne passed away on the 5th of December 1978, aged 56, and Frida passed away on the 30th of July 2012, aged 86. Just on a side note, though, about this innocence being lost, while going through the news articles for this case, and I'm talking 1960, there was an article next to one of the pieces I was reading. It was about a 13-year-old boy that bound the hands and feet of a 7-year-old girl and drowned her in a dam. He then dragged her out of the dam and dumped her on the side of the road. So fucked up people were always around and they still are. So Islanders, what do you think? Have your say on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Just search for True Crime Island and don't forget, join the Facebook group if you like. So I'd like to hear what you got to say. So now we get to the end of the show and the shout outs for Patreon. And it's been a big thank you to Gina Wersch. And sorry if I've mispronounced that, Gina, but thank you so much. And hi to Laura Yarnell, who upped her pledge. Thank you very much. <laughs> much. Thank you all so much for your support. And thanks so much to all the present and, of course, the past Patreon supporters of the island. It really does make a difference. This week, I renewed my newspaper.com subscription and I relied heavily on that for this week's episode. Now, True Crime Island is a totally listener-supported podcast. I keep it ad-free, as I know you don't like them, and neither do I. But i still got a day job, people. <laughs> I want to get rid of that. If you want to support the island financially for as little as a dollar a month, you too can become a patron. Go to patreon.com forward slash truecrimeisland and check out the levels and the rewards. Alternatively, you can do one-off donations at paypal.me forward slash truecrimeisland. There's links on truecrimeisland.com, my website, for all this stuff. Also, you can support the island by getting hold of some merch such as t-shirts, hoodies, beach towels, the fantastic tote bags, but my favourite, of course, are the mugs of rage. All available from truecrimeisland.threadless.com. Again, a link on the webpage. 
Remember, listeners, <coughs> please don't order the black mugs. I say this nearly every week. I've got to sort that out. But white mugs only. There were a few purchases this week, so thank you very much. And boom, bagalanga. I do have keychains, lapel pins, stickers and beer koozies, which you need to contact me directly for. I only have a few stickers left, but I will order some more this week. That can be done by emailing me, cambo at truecrimeisland.com. And that's also the best way to contact me personally for anything else, such as case requests or just to say boom fagalanga or to tell me I haven't pronounced something right. Now, you don't have to spend money to support the island. You can also rate, review and tell your friends, family and workmates about the island and if they don't know how to tune in, show them. There's plenty of podcasts out there, not just mine, so that can open a whole new world for them. Search for True Crime Island, as I said, on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and join the closed group on Facebook. Now, this week we do have a promo from Michael of Murder Mile Podcast. It's back and it's a true crime podcast and audio guided walk of London's most notorious and often forgotten murder cases. So check it out. That promo's at the end of the show. Also, that book I told you about, it's a children's detective book titled Kidnapping File, The Graham Thorne Case by Amanda Howard. Now, I haven't read it, but I know it was released in the US. Probably get it on Amazon or something. I'm not sure. Now, it's for kids to learn how the investigator used forensic techniques to solve this case. So, I might also tell them, don't get in cars of strangers. Bit of stranger danger, I'm not sure. So that's about it for the show tonight. Lots of love to Maggie James. And I'm your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. As I always say, if my voice makes it to the end, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night and boom Hi, I'm Michael, host of the Murder Mile True Crime Podcast, which was nominated as one of the best British true crime podcasts of 2018, is based on my five-star rated guided walk, and features more than 300 untold, unsolved, and long-forgotten murders, all set within one square mile of London's West End. So if you love hearing about new cases for the first time, all cases through a fresh pair of ears, and classic cases with a twist. All researched using the original declassified police investigation files, written using first-hand accounts, and recorded using authentic sounds from the murder location itself, then Murder Mile is just for you. Download the Murder Mile True Crime podcast on iTunes, Acast, or your favourite podcast platform every Thursday. Thank you for listening and stay safe.